This episode of Powered by Women is brought to you in part by In Search of the New Compassionate Male. For more information, go to newcompassionatemale.com. Heard of steam powered, horse powered, and gas powered, rev your engines. And then there's solar powered, man powered, and the old electric. But get this even though Dennis is directing this. This show is solely lunar. Welcome. Welcome to our pilot episode, our maiden voyage of a new show on Tardon Media, powered by women. And I'm very happy to be your host. My name is Diane Call. And first, I do want to thank Dennis Tardon and Renee Uwarski for having faith in me with captaining the ship. I have never hosted a show like this before little bit of nerves and excitement all that all that good stuff and just so open to this process and very happy to say that it is time it's a exciting and sometimes tumultuous time as we women are finding our what i would think are true and authentic voices in this modern age and I certainly have been in the process of finding my own voice and fortifying it, claiming it unapologetically. And uh, so I'm going to be on this journey with you. We are going to be learning together from many powerful women. Now, how do they get from there to here? And uh, I have no doubt that my first guest, we're going to be learning a lot from gaining a lot of inspiration from and let's let's bring her on Renee Jaworski hello hi Diane how are you oh man I am so excited I'm just so thrilled uh, to have this opportunity to talk with you I know it's so exciting (laughs) (laughs) it is it is you know and Full disclosure here, I've been looking for an excuse to have a conversation with you and, and here we go. With, with Me this. too. <laughs> this is our excuse. This whole thing is just so we can have our conversation. I know. <laughs> oh boy, it's true. I agree. Yeah. And you know, I've I've gotten to know you through Facebook and you know, so it's just such a such an honor and a privilege just to you know, have these 30 minutes to talk with you. And I definitely want to learn more about your experiences. You've done so much. And I just, I want to fill our audience in on your many accomplishments. Oh my gosh. Uh, this, this one just floored me. You started equestrian competitive sport training at the age of five. Yeah. Five. <laughs> yeah. Olympic level stuff. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It was really cool. Um, it was really cool. I was when I was uh, I, I had just turned five. And then 
I saw um, True Grit, the initial, the original True Grit movie, and I was really inspired. And I said to my mom, I want to ride horses. We had, we, she called every stable in town and they said, you have to be at least six. But then she found one stable that said, well, we'll meet her. And so I went there and uh, had some interesting experiences, but I was allowed to start competing at age five. So that became my entire life. That's amazing. And mm -hmm. it, it takes, you know, and looking even at your, your future accomplishments, like, you know, being a teenager and a drummer for a, a popular band in New York yeah. and going to law school and being an advocate and activist within the prison, prison system and songwriting and producing and directing. It's like, it all just takes that level of assertiveness and yeah. leadership. And especially yes. with that, the horse, you know, that, that whole training. I, I'm so curious about that to begin with, you know, as a little girl, you know, you're having to take charge of that horse. Yes. 1200 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. 1200 pound animal. Yeah. What was that like? What was that like as a little girl? I'm so fascinated by that. I'm fascinated too. And I think about it a lot. Um, my first experience on a horse when I was five, my parents were there and uh, we had a trainer named Kelly. She was 18 years old at the time. She put me on a horse and another horse came into the arena and spooked and then spooked my horse. And so I was thrown, all the wind was knocked out of me and the horse that had escaped reared over me and the, the hooves came right down next to my head. And that was my, that was the first five minutes I was ever on a horse. And so I said to the trainer, I said, am I dead? She said, no, honey, you're not dead. And she walked me, she came over, she went and talked to my parents and she said in equestrianism, you have to get back on the horse immediately or else you'll never get back on. It will be a trauma for her. What would you like her to do? And so my mom said, will you, to me, Becky, which is, you know, my, my name, whatever, Becky, mm -hmm. do you want to get back on the horse or do you want to go home? And I said, no, I'll get back on. And so I got back on and that was the beginning, but that was the crossroads. So that was the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me in equestrianism. It happened in the first five minutes and I had the choice to get back on right then and there and move forward or, you know, never, never do it again. I would have never come back. I would, I would have just, re I still see the hooves in my brain even today. It was I scary. And I can't help but think how that shaped your life. I think it was, and it was really the 18 year old trainer, Kelly, um, teaching me that first thing is that when something happens, if you have that quote unquote true grit, that's grit. You, you go and you go through it anyways. You do it scared. You do it in the moment. Otherwise, it's very hard to come back later. So I applied that the rest of my life. I think of, I think of that lesson like every time I have an issue. Really? So, mm -hmm. you know, I know when we talked previously, you know, just a little bit of pre-production that we did, mm -hmm. I, I had mentioned defining moments and how many defining moments we can have as human beings, as men, as, as women. And that, would you say, is your like pinnacle 
Yes. And you know, I, I love defining moments because when you said that, I want to, I want to disclose that I had another defining moment. So there were bookends and I want to show how yeah. a person's journey can go two different ways. So I chose to get back on the horse when I was five in my, my first time riding fast forward till I'm about 16 or 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was now training an Olympic level horse. His sire was Abdullah, who was a famous Olympic horse. And I got him. His name was Zacchaeus. I was training him. And I was getting thrown all the time, just, you know, bit and kicked and just normal, dragged. It's normal. And I always remember one day I had another defining moment. The defining moment was I was teaching him how to jump. He threw me. I was fine. And I just had a defining moment and I said, oh my gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to ever do this again. And I never Mm. figured out why I got scared. So I reversed what had happened to me when I was five. And then I went into music and it was fine. I ended up doing other things with my life, but that's what ended my equestrian career. It was like the same thing happened. Yeah. And when I was five, I went through. And then when I was like 16 or 17, I, I didn't. And so that was a process of decoupling from that sport. It caused my trainers a lot of pain. My mother was mystified. And I just, I just Hmm. got scared. And I think I also was okay because I was also doing music and I was doing literature and and activism. So it was not as simple as that. But at the end of the day, it, it, it shows what would have happened had I employed that psychological method at five years old, my life would have, I would have never gone into horses. So it, it starts and yeah. it stops with, with applying that or not applying it. And, and that, and, and when I was older, I did not apply it in that case. And I applied it in music and in law and in mm-hmm. activism, but it, and that was the end of my equestrian career. You know, when I listen to you, I'm also wondering if that was wisdom coming through of, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're talking about getting thrown and dragged and bit. And, you know, there's so much resiliency, I think, that gets built up. But then it's sort of like maybe there was some wisdom of, you know, your health is important, too. (laughs) It was a Simone Biles. It was a Simone Biles. I know it it, it was that. It was also that saying, do I really need this? If there are other things I want to do, do I want to? Because everyone else I had known in the sport had broken a lot of bones and and you know you know paralysis can happen to certain people so I think I just was scared you know that it wasn't worth it I wanted to do other things I wanted to do performance art and drama and music and stuff like that so it was complicated but that did happen and I and it was it changed my life so it changed my life both ways that is fascinating and you know i i I'm one of those people I kind of automatically reframe sometimes the things that, that, that people say. And when I hear you say I was scared, I'm kind of thinking, no, I think you were wise and brave to step okay. away, Thank you know, you. and to try new, new opportunities. That, that, thank that's how you. I'm hearing you. Yeah. I'm well, like, that changes my perception of that moment. So thank you. I'll, I will use that perspective going forward. That gives me a lot of comfort. It gives me comfort. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Diane. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, let's, let's kind of move into, um, God, I'm still just kind of reflecting on those bookend moments as well. God, there's so much there. Um, mm-hmm. 
that maybe we, we could just move forward here with, you know, have there been other internal struggles or internal obstacles? I mean, you've, you've done so much, so, you know, you could land this uh, answer in any area, whether it's music or law. Yeah, I had another defining moment I had was, which was concurrent with the second part of my questionism was when I was 14, I saw Dead Man Walking, which mm -hmm. is a very powerful movie. Very. And I wanted to, I wanted to know if people who had done bad things, because I led kind of a, a nice life, you know, a nice upbringing. I had never seen violence. So when I saw Dead Man Walking, it, it really bothered me that there were people who could do, you know, violent things to one another. And I became curious and I decided to start contacting death row prisoners one-on-one -on -one through the mail. This is before the internet was really a big thing. So I had yeah. to do it through organizations and they would link you up with a pen pal and you would trade letters. And I wanted to know if someone who had committed these crimes was like a monster are they a monster or are they just like me? That was a conscious question that I had. And so that began, I began corresponding with various men, getting deep friendships with them, and then uh, in eventually becoming an activist against uh, the death penalty and also organizing. When I got to Athens, I also organized my own uh, organization against that Athenians against the death penalty. We got absorbed into yeah. Georgians for alternatives for the death penalty. So I, en we ended up becoming a chapter of theirs, but, and I ended up visiting face to face with many death row prisoners over a long, long, about 14 year period. And that's what brought me to law school. That's fascinating. And yeah. it, it sounds like you know, I'm thinking of that movie, Dead Man Walking, and that, that lone Susan Sarandon character. I'm I'm forgetting the... Sister um, Prezian, yeah. Sister Helen yeah. Prezian is the character, right, yeah. You know, how brave she was to walk into that environment, and there you are doing the same thing as, as a woman. Yes, as a woman. So I would be the only... The, the way death row is uh, visitation is operated in Georgia is it's a big communal cell mm -hmm. and the cops lock you in there with all the prisoners all the death row prisoners who are visiting on that day no one is shackled we have chips and drinks and so you're just there with them and and if anything were to happen the cops have to all mobilize and come in you know it's high 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 danger it's extremely high danger so i would be like you know when i was maybe 18 19 um i would be sometimes the only vi female visitor with maybe 18 of these men who had all committed capital murder. And I would be there for hours and hours, praying, singing, talking, and, and lecturing them and getting irritated with them. And, and I think, <laughs> I, I mean, really, you know, these are, I know, you know, I, would, I knew them in, in, for many years and I had relationships with them and we would take pictures and stuff. And I, I think the fact that I was a girl gave me license to mouth off more, to oh, be more powerful because I, they weren't competing with me. They almost thought it was kind of like a, a badge of honor to get kind of yelled at by Renee, you know, because I would come in there and, you know, like one of them had tried to commit suicide. He didn't tell mm. me. So when I saw him, he had um, the marks on his 
on his throat. And I said, what's that? Mm. And he said, yeah, I, I, I put the thing around me. I'm yell. I, I got mad. I was pissed. How dare mm-hmm. you do that? What did you think of? You know, that was like a three hour lecture by Renee and he's, he dealt with it, you know, and mm-hmm. cried and, and, you know, don't do that again and all that. But I think if I had been a man, I couldn't have gotten away with that because in, in prison there, it's a machismo yeah. culture. And, and I was there when they would fight, throw each other mm-hmm. up against the walls with like that. But I was always like unseen. It, I'm not a threat to them. I wasn't a threat to them. So I yeah. could walk in and mingle. I think it was, I think my womanhood, I know my, my, my womanhood was a big power. I think it kept me safe actually. That's, that's so interesting. It, and it just takes so much chutzpah, you know, to. Yeah, <laughs> it does. To, yeah. To put yourself it's... in that situation at such a young age. And mm-hmm. I can hear how your passion just fueled that. Yes, I was very passionate about it. I wanted to know if there was a big difference between me and someone who had ended up there. Wow. And, you know, you'd be eating, you know, you can eat with these men and you look at or you pray with them, you hold their hands and you know what their hands have done. You know what their hands have done. You know what my hands have done. But at the end of the day, I can tell you, I learned more than I taught. And I can tell you with true, this is very genuine. I never met a man on death row that I thought was somehow lesser than me or not as righteous as me or not as good as me. I never felt that. Mm. Not true. It's just that they had different experiences and also were caught or were profiled more but they had, if I had mm-hmm. lived their lives, I don't know that I would have done even as well as it. a lot of times they had done less than what I think someone like me could have done. That's what I believe. Yeah. And it sounds like you really made an impact on so many of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still in touch with some of these people or? No, I'm no longer in touch with any of them. I went to law school. So I I went to law school and then I ended up um, working for a very, very cool. um, He's a criminal defense attorney here in town. He's like the Johnny Cochran of the New York, New York area. He takes all the Mm -hmm. high profile things. And again, it was like the equestrianism. I one day, I don't know who we were defending, but I pooped out. It was the same thing. It was like, I I don't want to do this anymore. And so I ended up going away. I ended up going into disability law. Mm-hmm. I just got um, burned out or whatever you want to say. Just it was it was hard. There were specific cases we were working on that that were um, so tough that even the paralegal left. There were just some of them that were very like very tough involving um, it just it doesn't matter. It's just that to me at a certain point, I said, OK, my time on Earth, maybe now I want to focus on um, clients who are disabled, elderly, you know, children, things like that. I felt like I had given 14 years to one, one demographic and now I felt like mm-hmm. another one. Yeah. Yeah. I can really relate to that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah I felt I like my time was up. I felt like it was time to go somewhere else. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have to be tied down to just one role or one mm-hmm. purpose in, in life. Yes. And how um, nice to have that flexibility when it's, when it's there. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sometimes, yes. Yeah, sometimes courage is saying yes when you're scared. And then sometimes what I'm, what I'm learning from you right now, sometimes courage is actually leaving 
as well. So saying yes or saying no, both could take courage, but there's a time and a place for, for all of that. And I felt that it was time to do. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the, the music side of you. And <laughs> Thank you, you. you are doing so much and, you know, I think my, my big question around music is I'd just love to hear you talk about how you found your voice, like your, your own kind of expressive voice through music. And, and you started at the age of two. Yes. At the age of two, I started the Suzuki method on violin and then, and then right into piano. Suzuki means that you don't learn to read first. You learn to hear and intuit first. Yeah. So I became intuitive. My brother went the other direction and my brother can read music fabulously and all that. He's very technically good, but he's not a songwriter, really. He went more on the technical side. I went more to the creative side mm -hmm. and um, yeah, writing my own songs. And, and that was really precious to me. And I always did it, but I never felt I never felt good enough to share it. So I had a boyfriend when I was in middle school, Eugene. He's this fantastic uh, um, superstar type guy, you know, like uh, like a Mick Jagger. He's this front man, <laughs> this glittery front man. And he was my boyfriend. OK, from age of age nine, we were boyfriend, girlfriend all the way up till the end of high school. Aww. And and Eugene wanted to do rock and roll and he wanted to be a front man. And he liked Nirvana and grunge and all that stuff. And he needed a drummer and he was my boyfriend. So I learned how to play the drums. And I became the drummer for his band. And because of his magnetism and charisma, and he was good looking, and I mean, just you name it, he had it. He's yeah. he's like a, an it boy. Mm -hmm. He led that group to in rec deals, all that. He became friends with Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill, who, and you know, she ends up marrying the Beastie, a guy from the Beastie Boys. Yeah, he was hobnobbing with all of those, and and we gained. This is before the internet, really, but we gained this big thing because of him. And I was always in the background. I was the drummer, mm -hmm. and I was comfortable with that. Eugene was the the guy. So they would go out and party afterwards. I would go home and read my books. You know. I didn't, uh, I didn't really get into that, but like Bobcat Goldthwait was one of our fans. He would come and support us and Eugene would go and hang out with Bobcat and all that. You know, I didn't, I didn't go. I was this bookworm. So you, I was in Eugene's shadow yeah. happily. Yeah. So, and mm -hmm. I supported him that so. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, but I didn't have a voice. So I really don't find my voice until the, um, and then in Athens, I was a front, I was a front woman because I had to be. So I did that, but I never felt comfortable in it. I always mm -hmm. actually relied. We always said in, in my second band, we always said the, we had a lead drummer. Edison was my drummer and he was a bump. They call him bombastic. Really. I let him be the lead, even though I was still playing the guitar. It was all about him. I don't know. I always like to defer. So I didn't find my voice. Now, last year, Dennis and I started working together. I started producing. He started directing. And uh, Dennis Tardon, of course, mm -hmm. he is the one who, for too many reasons to talk about in one interview, but he's the one who slowly, over the course of us working together and playing together and everything else, I start to say, oh, OK, I can have a voice. Like he would tell me, well, you're funny. And I would get mad. Mm -hmm. I, say, That's, I don't even want to be funny. That's not even an attractive 
trait. You know, the guys that I know are funny. Eugene was funny. Edison was funny. I'm the one who's not funny. And Dennis would say, no, you're actually really funny. You're, you you're really talented. Yeah. And I never saw that. And so I, I, I that gave yeah. me permission to see myself in this new light. I start writing songs again. I never wanted to be a solo artist, mm -hmm. but now it's like because of quarantine and also because now I have this confidence. Now I say, okay, I don't have to, I would always be like, okay, I have to wait for the quote unquote band to be back together before I can record. And now mm -hmm. I feel like, okay, you know, I can, I can do this maybe not on my own because there's always other people around. And certainly I, re I rely very heavily on Dennis for a lot of things, but it's not, I, I'm not in anyone's shadow anymore. Yeah. So it's a little scary. I don't always like it, mm -hmm. but it's, and it's freeing okay. at the same time, but I'm finding my voice. I know you always talk about that, Diane, is finding. I'm, I'm finding my voice. I don't know that I've found it, but I'm finding it. Yeah, and do we ever completely find it? You know what I mean? It's sort of like, do we ever completely learn everything there is to learn on this? Hopefully track? not, yeah, because then it would yeah. be boring, right? <laughs> yeah, it would. It would. And, you know, I know that the theme of being apologetic kind of has been an undercurrent in your life as well. And I, I do kind of hear that almost, and I'm relating to it completely mm -hmm. because I, I'm someone who's been very comfortable being a support person and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of being second banana, second fiddle. Oh, I'll just, you know, yep. I'll just accompany you on guitar or, you know, I'll let you tell the jokes. Right. Um, and, and there's, there's, great comfort in it. But after a while, it's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I have something to say too. <laughs> I know it's this phenomenon and, and, and I've seen it. I've seen it in, in even the shows that we do where there's a lot of shows around the women, even if we have something to say, it's like the boys just talk. talk. And, and a lot of times we don't even know how to interject, you know? And, and, and a lot of times I say to myself, am, a lot of times I say to myself, literally is my mic off? <laughs> Hello, testing. Yeah. And a lot of times it's, and I've seen it happen to other, to other women too. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just, so it's, I, th I find it interesting culturally that when a woman, we almost have to be louder or say something that much more brilliant to have any impact at all. Sometimes I feel that way. I don't feel bad about it. I just feel like maybe I need to find a way to up my game a little bit. It was like that in law too. And of course it's like that in the music world, heavily like that in the music world. It certainly is. And, you know, for me, I think my biggest thing has been just learning how to actually project my voice right? so that my voice is heard. I've always talked softer. And, you know, I, I think I was um, sharing this one time where uh, with my now ex-husband, you know, he very funny. And I would just sort of give these little asides that no one else would hear but him. And then he'd share that little aside and get all the credit for it. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I'm, I came up with that joke, you know, but just for me, it's sort of like uh, my way of hiding used to be to talk softer, you yes, know, exactly the, uh, below the radar. You know, what helped me? you know, what helped me is I lost, I started losing my hearing because of all the music. I actually oh, really? can't hear that well. So I oh. talk so loud and it's not my boldness. It's that I can't hear myself. Once I get hearing aids, then I'll be, I'll be lots of oh. It 
it's a blessing in disguise, huh? It's a blessing in disguise. People are like your voice is very loud. I'm like, is it? I can't hear. Right, right. I need to get like I need to get one of those little horns, you know. The tones, yeah. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, and you know, I, I I watch you when you're producing shows or co-hosting shows, and I mean, you really do hold your own. You really do, and you've garnered so much respect, and and, and I see it, Thank I you. hear it, Thank and you. you know what. What do you tell yourself like when you're in those positions? Because to me, as a viewer, I see you, it's like you are holding that space as, as, a, as a woman, sometimes the only woman in a group. What, what, what are some of your secrets? <laughs> I will, t I, 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 I'm going to be, I can only be 100% honest. And I, it is Dennis Tardon. It's, it's the time that I, all the time that I spend with him. He's, mm -hmm. you know, for anyone who doesn't know, who's just watching this and is not aware. So he's been, he's been in broadcasting now for, you know, over four decades. He yeah. is also a communication coach and a director. So yeah. I have access to being directed and coached like every single day for hours and hours and hours. So if you go back to before him, I, you don't see that at all. You see me, my body language, totally different going within. And so obviously not everyone's going to have a dentist, but what I will say is that sometimes what's helpful is to have someone who is outside of yourself looking in and who will be honest with you, like apologizing. One of the first things I remember, one of the first conversations I ever had with Dennis is him teasing me about how often I was apologizing. Every other mm -hmm. word out of my mouth was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you know, this obsequious sort of thing. Yeah. And just having somebody that you trust and who loves you very much and is so um, warm and all of that, who can sort of give you that. And then of course, when I was, was taking acting classes and stuff, we would have to watch ourselves back. And mm -hmm. I would see that the things he was directing, I would see it. I'd say, okay, that's actually not a great quality for me to like talk down and mumble or humming and hawing and apologizing for everything out of my mouth. What am I even apologizing for? I don't even understand. Right. So it's just, just working on those little things and working on them one by one, instead of just saying, I'm going to be confident because that's, I can't achieve that. I can't get to that point, but have someone in your life who will say, you know, that, and also being open. I'll give myself credit in that. Yes. Dennis always says I'm directable. I don't put up, I, I, there's something in me because my brother was, a very mean older brother. Oh. <laughs> okay. Very of <laughs> uh, anything you, you know. So I learned very early on to and, and also doing equestrianism and doing music lessons and all of that. Um, being a good student, be open to criticism. Don't put up those walls. Absolutely. Don't you can learn something. Even if the person isn't right, you still want to say you want you want to invite people to quote unquote criticize you or to tell you how you come off. Mm-hmm. And that's some, so that's actually um, the biggest thing you could have. So get a, get a dentist, get someone who can fill that role, <laughs> get a dentist and then be willing to listen to that dentist. And it could be multiple dentists, the Denny, you could have multiple. Denny, deny. You could have Do not deny, right. <laughs> Do not deny, deny the deny. Right, right. <laughs> I'm so glad that you gave yourself credit for being open and, it really does take 
courage, and that's the word that just keeps running through my head with you as we're talking, is the courage that you have had and continue to have. And it takes courage to be open to feedback and to change and to really just even be more comfortable in your own skin, you know, as, as a woman in this world. Yes, yes. And connecting with um, my womanhood or femininity. I was always a tomboy growing up mm-hmm. and I never felt feminine. So that's another thing over the last year or so working in, in acting and modeling, which Dennis directs me there too, on me being saying, oh, okay, I feel feminine, feminine. I feel the womanhood. I embrace that. Instead yeah. of trying to be more, either be more male-like or being ashamed that I'm masculine, or what does that even mean? I, these are very heavy questions, but I've been wrestle, I've been going through all of that. It's a journey to embracing my womanhood as well, yeah, which has been hard for me to do, really hard. I I completely hear you, and you know, as as we're we're going to start to to wind down here, uh, Renee would definitely love to have you back at some point in the future because oh, yeah. I really would love to talk about that topic. Yes. Um, I'm somebody who I was raised in a household where my two older sisters were tomboys and I was the girly girl and I was considered to be lesser than. So mm. growing up under that dynamic mm. and sort of feeling shame about, you know, wanting to wear a dress. <laughs> right, right. You know, and just working through that, which I have. But it, it is, it's an interesting kind of, you know, that systemic cultural yes. bias that's been, you know, I don't know if it's worldwide or, or not, but I would definitely love to have that conversation. That's a whole conversation because you and it I is. were on the flip side, but it's the same coin. And I would have loved, I envied the girls like you. I wanted to be the girl oh. like you. Oh. I wanted to be that girl. So you're like my hero right now. Oh. <laughs> I'll have to show you a picture of the dress that when I was, you know, like three and four years old, that I was so, you know, I was like, I'm going to wear this dress. Oh, <laughs> please show it to me. Yeah. DM me. I will. I will. And, you know, I just, I have one final question and, and you know, it's just, it's, a, I love takeaways because I think we always have takeaways from life experiences and is there one takeaway that's just coming to mind right now that you've learned from any experience in your life that you would like to share with us that you feel would be helpful i think yes thank you for inviting me to do that i think people um would gain a lot if they would say yes to the things that they're afraid to saying yes to yes (laughs) i see so many people waiting for the right moment to do, to give themselves permission to do what they want to do, to say what they want to do, to say that right moment will never come. Just think of me five years old getting thrown by the horse. It just wasn't the right moment. So I had to override that and to say yes anyways, because I wanted to be, I really wanted to be uh, an equestrian. That was the worst moment to do it. It was the wrong age to do it. I could have been killed, yes, but I said yes. I'm so grateful. That that set me up for an, a fantastic childhood. It was one of the best childhoods you could imagine, and it taught me so many things. And I that's one thing that I've been doing over and over and over again in my life is I say I'm saying yes and I'm not waiting for yes. So don't wait for yes. Just say yes. Oh, I love that. And I I I Honor Thank that. you for asking. That is 
thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's beautiful and so powerful. Thank you. And thank you. I love you, you Diane. I love you too, Renee. You're so great. One of these days we're meeting in person. I don't know when, but we will. I'll never let you go at that point. I'm just going to attach myself. I know. (laughs) Thank you so much for being my first guest. And I, again, you know, we will have another conversation about kind of that that shame around uh yes femininity that's always a hard word to say too femininity yeah it's so hard (laughs) and it has ninny in it why does it have ninny in it that's not right (laughs) that's right yeah that's right maybe that's where they got ninny from oh no i have to look that up now that's a google a whole other (laughs) that's a whole other (laughs) other can of worms And why is it so hard to say? It shouldn't be so hard to say. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> Give us a break, language makers. Exactly. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much. I'm just, I, I'm feeling really good about this. You know, we, we both had some nerves about, you know, this is the pilot episode. And we, yeah. You know, we both had some nerves about it, but I'm feeling so good about moving forward with the show. And, you know, again, thank you, Renee. And Thank you, Dennis. This this is going to be so much fun. And so I know. Oh and um, I can't wait to learn and to continue to grow and to talk even louder than, than I am now. <laughs> I can help you, you with that. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all for watching. This has been Powered by Women. Again, my name is Diane Call, and I look forward to our next show. And until then, be well. This episode of Powered by Women has been brought to you in part by In Search of the New Compassionate Male. For more information, go to newcompassionatemale.com.